We had about 233 sign up and we're going to have some walk-ins, so we kind of outgrew the room where we, are, where we normally are on Wednesday night. So I hope you don't think us pretentious, but we thought this would be a better place to facilitate this. And I'm excited about the large screens because you can't teach prophecy without charts. You know, it's just not possible. I'm certain Paul had charts that were handed down to him from Moses. And, you know, so sure he wrote rapture passages. He had a chart on the rapture, but we're going to do our best. And again, one of the, the, probably the thing that I'd love for you to keep and and make sure that uh, you use in your, in our future times is the is the chart handout, the one that has timeline of the Bible on the, uh, the front sheet. Um, the other ones are, it's just the PowerPoint presentation that you're going to see. I may have added one slide or something, but uh, when we go into the PowerPoint, you, you'll see, and I'll tell us when it's time to look at uh, the accompanying slide in larger format uh, in your notes. It'll also be uh, in your uh, handouts or, and on the screen as well. So uh, sufficient warning of where we're going. We'll... Um, We'll cover some material this evening, so I want to pray for us and let us know kind of where, you're, where we're going to go uh, as we begin our four-week time uh, in prophetic literature. So let me pray for us and for those that are still coming, and then we'll, we'll get going. Father, thank you so much for the privilege that we do have to come and gather uh, and be um, able to hear from you, uh, for indeed our hope is in you. Uh, and I pray that that hope is uh, rekindled, um, refurbished this evening as we see uh, just a small section of the Word of God uh, as to what the future holds and how you hold it. I pray that it might be a time of encouragement for us. It might be a time of learning. It might be a time of challenge. It might be a time in which we um, uh, need to take care of business with you. I pray that your, your spirit might be among us and um, reveal to us and disclose to us, uh, teach us, uh, comfort us. Uh, Father, on, on certainly on this day where we acknowledge the anniversary of D-Day, we are grateful for the men and women who have served before us for our armed services now and in the past. I thank you for those that have uh, given the last full measure, and we are grateful to uh, uh, be able to stand in the aftermath of their service, and we continue to thank you for your kindness to us as a nation. Uh, we ask you, Lord, to um, allow us now a time of refreshment in the Word of God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, again, welcome. Got your handouts. Again, it's okay to spread out because I've loaded you up with a bunch of paper and you're going to have your Bibles and handouts and all sorts of stuff. So feel free uh, to go wherever you want. Uh, We're going to go at it for four straight Wednesdays uh, in this room, most likely, unless we, uh, we're going to get some counts and figure out if we can make it into the other room. But usually the first night is the largest and then we scare everybody off and then we're able to fit into the other rooms. Um, But tonight we'll cover uh, the rapture. Uh, Next week, Jason Wheezy Poppy will cover the tribulation with you. Matt Morton will cover the uh, millennial kingdom with you. And then I'll be back on the 27th to handle the new heavens and new earth. So I'll bat lead off and clean up. And then uh, Jason and Matt will cover in the middle. Uh, One of the things that we'll also have to do tonight is to introduce us or reintroduce us to some terms, even some of the things that they'll be doing. So it's impossible to teach about the rapture without also talking about uh, where it fits in relationship to the tribulation and what is the larger future in the, in the area of the uh, millennial kingdom and even uh, heaven or the new heavens and new earth. So we'll have to introduce some of those tonight, chewing up a little bit of our rapture time, but it'll, it'll help us understand, I think, these terms and these concepts 
and moreover, begin to see patterns in the Scripture as to how God might be uh, unfolding the future. So as we take a look at the, uh, the rapture, we've got three goals. As I prayed, I, I want us to be encouraged uh, from God's uh, prophetic word. It, it is a, a, a source of comfort, as we'll see in one of our major passages in 1 Thessalonians 4. He gives the story of the rapture and then says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. Um, it's neat to kind of know what might happen in the future and that God's in control, but his primary purpose for giving um, much of prophetic literature is that we uh, remind ourselves of his sovereignty and his control and therefore uh, can be comforted. I also want to uh, fight a little bit of what's called eschatological agnosticism. Uh, eschatology is the study of last things. The Greek word eschatos means last things. Uh, the, the, the logi at the end simply means the study of last things or eschatology. And w- what I've seen is, is, is really in my lifetime, I'm, I'm 59 and I've uh, followed the Lord since uh, the early 80s, um, at which, I mean, in, in early 1980, man, it was rapture fever. Everybody was talking about the rapture. Everybody could lay out a schema of rapture, tribulation. Maybe it's in the middle of the tribulation. Maybe it's at the end, then the millennial kingdom, then the new heavens and new earth. And it was well understood, uh, all the various components. Um, what I see sort of creep in is a lack of knowledge, meaning from the agnosticism, and so we're going to hit a lick on that uh, again uh, tonight and the next three nights. But the, actually the part that, that discourages me or has me a little bit more concerned is just an indifference, sort of what's crept into a lot of what I hear, uh, in, in, see in, in, on TV or read in books or, or hear on podcasters or just tapes or CDs, I guess, I'm get t- dating myself a bit. Um, is, is the idea of, of this indifference, almost a, so what? You know, I mean, God's in control. It, it, it'll work out. Uh, the problem is with that position, or either one of those, is that 27% of the Word of God is prophetic literature. And a great deal of it, by the way, uh, occurs in the Old Testament. Let me read you some stats that I found interesting as I was preparing this morning. Again, 27% of the Bible is prophecy. In the Old Testament, there are over 1,800 references to Christ's return. The rapture is a component, an aspect of Christ's return that is only described in the New Testament. The return of Jesus Christ is a big deal biblically. Of the 260 chapters in the New Testament, there are more than 300 references to Christ's return. One out of every 30 verses, if you average that it out, would talk about the return of the Lord. 23 of the 27 New Testament books give prominence to the subject of the return of Jesus Christ. For every biblical prophecy concerning Christ's first coming, there are eight prophecies concerning his second coming. And so we're going to spend some, some time tonight making sure we understand uh, the, the differences between the second coming of Christ uh, from the book of Revelation, primarily chapter 19, and what we're going to be calling the rapture, this previous return, I take it. And any of the schemes that people have come up with, the, the rapture precedes the second coming, and we'll, we'll see by how much does it precede it. And you cannot study prophetic literature without sharpening your Bible study method skills of observation, interpretation, and application. Uh, for my money, it is the hardest literature to interpret because it's all a bunch of symbols and visions and wild stuff flying around. And is this real or what does that stand for? And if it stands for it, what did he understand it to mean in, in, in the first century? And how does that apply to me? So um, that's why you have lots of different views 
in interpreting prophetic literature. Uh, some will hold, oh, it's just all allegory, and it, it corresponds really to nothing. It's all talking about the same thing, the return of the Lord, and don't worry about all the little details. Uh, that view is widely held, by the way. Others uh, will hold a much more detailed view because uh, they see some patterns in the Scriptures, and they see that the symbols are actually interpreted within the Bible itself and can begin to probe a little deeper as to the meaning of God's Word. Again, over one-fourth of the Scripture is prophetic, so I, I don't think it is outside uh, the bounds of common sense to say, I think we should deal uh, with the literature uh, that is prophetic in nature, even if it might have some difficulty, even if it might have some genres of which we're not all that used to. Uh, I think we can um, hit it a good lick and get some great meaning out of it. Um, the first three uh, handouts in your chart book are, is really what's coming up next, and what you're going to see is whenever I come to a big slide and have that little asterisk job, there's a corresponding handout for you. And again, it's simply going to be what's on the screen just in a larger format for you to, to look at, maybe take some notes. If you're following along in the PowerPoint presentation notes, it will be there, but it'll, the chart might be too small for you to really get some detail. But there are three charts that I want to start off with just to give us a sense of where we're going to go, because primarily our goal is to introduce us to the larger subject of eschatological things or prophetic things, uh, but we're going to focus in pretty quickly on what's called a premillennial and a pre-tribulation rapture scheme. It doesn't mean that we're not going to give the others credence, doesn't mean that we're not going to discuss them, but in an hour and 45 minutes with a break, it's impossible to discuss everything in full measure. So I was instructed, teach what our doctrine says, which is what I believe, and I think it uh, will give us a, a source of great joy and comfort. But I want to be fair and let us know uh, where others have, have understood things or how others have understood things. Uh, but the timeline of the scripture that you'll see in your handouts or above uh, on the overhead is generally uh, very linear, and it, it is pretty easy uh, to think it through. I like to think it through like a, a movie director. Um, it, put your Steven Spielberg hat on and think through how you want to tell the story of God's Word through the characters, through the nations, through the, uh, the groups of people that God has dealt with. It would just be like different scenes, and we're going to focus on this group here, and then we're going to focus on this group, and then we might return back to this group, and then we'll talk about this event, and it will begin to tell the story. And that story is, is uh, the Scripture is going to begin with the story of, of Adam through Abraham, the story of the Gentiles from which Israel will be produced through Isaac and Jacob, and then God's camera will focus upon the nation of Israel and the, uh, the, the Ten Commandments and the, uh, the, the hundreds more that follow after that become the law code for Israel. And then Israel's time uh, is up, and we'll see that Daniel 9 will predict that time to be very precise, by the way, when that time will be up. And then the church will be inserted, if you will. The camera moves again. But Daniel 9 is going to tell us that there's seven years left for the character that we've already seen introduced, Israel, in the play. And so we're going to come back to Israel for the final seven years of their time with God, a time that we know as the tribulation, which Jason will focus on. And then after that period of time, a time of, of great peace and joy and blessing, really what our hearts crave for is God on earth living with us, benevolently dictating and ruling over us, and that's known as the millennial kingdom. Uh, most often prophesied in the Old Testament, by the way, not just in Revelation 20, as we'll see. 
Revelation 20 just tells us how long it will be. But this age, this day, this, this span of time was most often discussed in the Old Testament. And we'll see the aspect of that unfold finally to what we would call heaven that actually has a little bit more precision to it. A new Jerusalem descending out of heaven, meeting a new and refurbished earth in which there is no longer any sea, John will tell us in Revelation 21. And so we see a a linear presentation unfold, uh, and we'll be touching on many of these aspects as our prophecy series goes on. Um, One of the things that I think is important is to always help people uh, be encouraged about studying the Old Testament. And, And because so many of our prophets from which prophecy will come are Old Testament prophets, it's wise to know the plan of the Old Testament, how it unfolds. Many of our prophets, by the way, that, that from which many of the things we'll study will come in this area, particularly in here with Daniel and Ezekiel. Uh, Ezekiel will have the most to say in the scripture about the millennial kingdom. Uh, Daniel will give, I think, the most amazing prophecy in all the Bible, uh, which will tell of Israel's final seven years and will predict to the day uh, in which Jesus Christ would walk into Jerusalem and then six days later be crucified. It is an amazing story of precision and God foretelling the future. But we got to be men and women of the old book also. We can't just be those that go to the New Testament and think that we can uh, receive most of our information on these subjects. And then finally, this is your yellow sheet. Uh, this, and the reason I wanted it separate is I think this is the easiest one to have out. It's also in the larger package, but we put it in a different color just to make sure that we can sort of identify these main components. Now, like we're baking a prophetic pie, you know, what are the ingredients? And as I said, we're primarily going to um, move toward more of a premillennial and pre-tribulation rapture scheme, and I'll talk about those fancy words in a moment. But the key components of that prophetic pie is going to be the church age in which we are in now which I believe will end with the rapture of the church and will next go into a precise definition of that term rapture that will then unfold into a seven-year tribulation period. And here's the key, focused primarily on Israel. Remember the timeline? We're in the church age now. We're filming this group, and now we're going to move the camera to this group. I think this group goes away this group becomes the focus of God's plan on earth as they finish up their final seven years of business with God, as we'll see described in detail in Daniel 9. Those seven years are actually divided by many books into two components. Matthew 24, one of the best places, the book of Revelation, it's going to be described as 1,260 days or 42 months, three and a half years, the first half and then a second half. So there's clearly a line of demarcation within the tribulation, which has given rise to different interpretations of when the rapture occurs, and we'll try to be fair to those. But at the end of the tribulation period, the, the grand and glorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation 19, some of the most powerful words in all of the Bible, where he comes with the saints in white linen who've been prepared for the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so the the bride and his and her groom have arrived, uh, and they they take care of the enemies of God on earth that are um, rampant now at the end of the tribulation period. They're judged, moved out, and then this period in which God literally, in the person of Christ, rules over the planet from Jerusalem. 
is clearly prophesied from dozens of different books in the Bible. Again, don't just kind of download Revelation and and say, well, I can't understand that because it's a vision and it's all these symbols. We can triangulate Daniel and Revelation and Matthew and Luke and Zechariah and Ezekiel and really begin to see a picture what is going to unfold. And so after that, John says in Revelation 21, 1, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth and there was no longer any sea. I love the the detail. It's still within a vision, but he's envisioning now a planet that Peter will tell us will now be destroyed by fire and now cast out again in the sense of being placed into motion again, this new planet in which heaven and earth will meet. And the story of the Bible then becomes complete, where where God and man were in unity, and it was disjoined by sin. And the rest of the Bible, from Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation 19, or through Revelation 20, is dealing with that terrible foe called sin. The person of Christ, of course, died for it, but the reconciliation of God to mankind and God to the planet is really the story of the Word of God. And finally, we see only in the last two chapters back to Genesis, if you will. There are only four chapters in the Bible that have no hint or presence of sin. Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22. And it forms a beautiful story of that which we were intended for, harmony with God, ruined by sin, is now reconciled, and we're back to Genesis again. So the story of of the prophetic scheme can actually become a story of great hope, a great provide a great structure for the Word of God, if you like to see it through that lens. And then the Scripture uh, talks about what we would often call heaven in those two verses or those two chapters and a, a few other places. But we're going to focus primarily on Revelation 21 and 22 and then what the Scripture talks about, commonly known as eternity. And that'll be our fourth study. So rapture tonight, tribulation next week, millennial kingdom third week, fourth week, new heavens, new earth. Those are the four pieces or four ingredients better of the prophetic pie, okay? So um, if you've got your Bible, let's go ahead and go to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, probably the clearest statement of um, the rapture in the Scripture. We're going to have to do a, good, a little word study just to make sure we have a good handle on this word. Uh, the larger context is, is verses 13 through 18, and when we do a little exercise here in a moment, uh, I'll have you look at those larger, that larger context. But right now, let's just focus on verses 16 and 17, wherein it says, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Let's put our good, our observant glasses on because I'm going to ask you to observe very precisely as the evening unfolds. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air little hint, and we shall therefore always be with the Lord. Our concept of the rapture is this two-word English phrase, caught up. It's one Greek word that's translated in two English words, caught up. And so we're going to go back and, and dig a little as to what was that word originally penned by Paul as he wrote the Thessalonians, uh, and see how else that word is used, okay? Um, Because it's not the word rapture. We're going to have to kind of get there. Uh, The word caught up is the word we're going to choose to look at. The transliterated Greek uh, is this word here, harpazo, and that's the word we're going to do a little study on, okay? So how is harpazo used elsewhere 
uh, in the New Testament. The concept that we're going to see in this word that appears about 23, 24 times as I recall is the idea of a sudden strength, a, a force. Uh, sometimes it's going to be translated uh, seize. Sometimes it's going to be translated snatch. I remember in studying in seminary, and, and you have to study outside uh, biblical Greek, and, and in, I think it was in just regular Koine Greek, the language of the New Testament, but not in the Bible. Uh, the word for the equivalent of our word purse snatcher was described with this word, one that would come with, with a force and a strength and a speed that would cause things to change very quickly. And so that's the idea behind the word, and it's going to appear uh, again over 20 times, and we're going to take a look at about seven or eight of them. And so if you're following in your, in your handouts, the, these are, are there, or you can just obviously look up here with me, or you can go in your Bibles. But we're, we're going to do rather quickly because we're going to begin to build a meaning, and, it, and the meaning is going to become pretty obvious pretty quickly of what this word is all about, this idea of seizure and suddenness, but with a strength of force Maybe our word snatch is the best way to grab that uh, idea. In 1 Thess 4, uh, 17, of course, the, it's translated caught up. So what we're going to look at, and every time you see the, the, the verse that I'm going to show you on the screen, it'll be this little yellow, uh, the word will be in yellow. But it'll be translated several different ways in English, but it's the same Greek word every time. And that's not uncommon at all, Okay. Um, but we're, we're really doing a word study on harpazo, but it happens to be translated different ways, but it's very consistent in the translations as to the idea or the concept. For example, look in 2 Corinthians uh, 12, 2 and 4. This is Paul uh, after, at the end of his uh, battles with the Corinthians. If you've ever studied Corinthians, this is actually a, a very poignant moment in, the, uh, in, in Paul's correspondence and uh, history with uh, the Corinthians. He's written them two letters that we have. Uh, there's a, a letter that's described as severe letter that's not most likely one of the letters that we have. That's another letter. And then it seems to refer to even another letter. He's had a long encounter with them as he deals with them, sort of duking it out with them as to their spiritual pride, their spiritual arrogance. And notice the humility of Paul, who doesn't tell them till the very end. He kind of wins them over. Uh, with this severe letter, I take it. Then he writes 2 Corinthians, which is primarily a letter of comfort, as you may think through how that book begins. But then there's a little flare-up even at the end where some don't want to follow after him. And, he, and, and, and these guys love visions, and they love all these wild things that they've done with God. In his whole encounter with them, he's never mentioned, oh yeah, I forgot to tell you, I went to heaven and I saw God. And he uses the word caught up or snatched or podzo to describe that. Second Corinthians 2, 12, 2 and 4, I know a man in Christ himself who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows, uh, such a man was harpazoed, was caught up uh, to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. And that's the end of the deal. The, the Corinthians were boasting about their revelations and what they had seen with God. He says, I've actually been. It was 14 years ago. And it's so unbelievable and majestic, I'm not even to speak of it. Thus instructing them, why don't you guys be quiet? Because most likely you've probably not been yourself. But notice he uses that, that phrase, caught up, to describe that. Somehow... 
He was raptured into God's presence. Philippians 2, a little different nuance here. Jesus Christ, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. It's the one word in Greek, all those words in English to translate it, okay? But that idea of grasping or holding on to something. Um, Hebrews 10.34, for you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure, the grabbing of your property, uh, knowing that, that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Just trying to show you as we kind of do a little time travel how they use the word that we call the rapture, and we're going to see how we get there. In Revelation 12, and she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. That idea of being translated or moved with great force and great speed, this catching up or being seized, if you will. And notice in John 10, I love this verse. I didn't know this was the word harpazo before I studied this this time around. Jesus speaking, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So that word snatch out is the same word harpazo that is translated in 1 Thessalonians as caught up, which is the word that's going to become what we call the rapture. So we're getting to see sort of how the word is used. Here, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away in Acts 8, and the eunuch was, and no longer saw him, but he went on his way rejoicing. All of a sudden, Philip's just gone, just translated out of that scene. A great dissension was developing. The commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them and ordering the troops to go down and take him away by force. It's kind of awkward in English, but in Greek, that harpazo is take away by force. That idea of quick, sudden, powerful snatching and seizing of something. So that's the image behind that in Matthew 13. When anyone hears the words of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away with evil intent here what has been sown in the heart. So we can learn some things from word studies that words are not good or bad. Words just describe situations and The situation is either good or bad. This is just a term that describes something that is quickly, suddenly, often with power, removed from where it is. So where do we get the word rapture? Again, it's not the word in Greek. It's going to be a Latin word, by the way. It's going to come from the Latin Vulgate. A guy named Jerome in about 382 uh, sat down and said, I think I'll write the Bible in Latin, which was uh, the lingua of the day. Um, It is called vulgate, by the way, because from the root vulgar, we would get our idea of vulgar, and we go, vulgar, that's bad, that's that's saying improper words. Actually, at that point, it just meant common. And I think it's important to note that the Greek of the New Testament was called koine Greek, common Greek. We we, we use the phrase phrase koinonia uh, for fellowship. It just means to have something in common. The language of the day in Greek was the common language of the everyday Jane and Joe, and the language of Jerome in 382 was the everyday street language, meaning merchants, way people talk, uh, known as the vulgar or the vulgate. And he, so he wrote it to put it into the hands of the people so they could understand God's Word. And church history is full of those little moments, by the way. So, so many times people think, well, if it's God, it must be some wild language that no one could possibly know, but some really smart people until you find out 
that God has designed uh, this whole plan so that he can communicate to us. And much like I might get down on my knees if I was going to talk to a kid because I wanted to make sure we were on the same level, we see that in Philippians 2, that although he existed in the form of God, he did not think it a thing to be grasped as we saw Christ emptied himself of his great possession and position and became a man and bent down and talked with us, humbled himself, uh, and so, so that he could communicate to the common person. And there, harpazo is translated from the, from the Latin family rapio. And it's, we're going to see, for all you Latin experts here, what it looked like in his language. The, uh, the, the symbol rapium cumilis was taken together with them. And so we get our word rapture from the Latin Vulgate's translation of the Greek harpazo in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. Okay? Probably could have done that in one sentence, but I like to kind of do all this stuff. Okay? That's the background of it. The idea in that, in that family in, in Latin was to seize, to be carried away in one spirit. It had gone, uh, gone on to mean that. So it's quite interesting that the concept remains pretty true, that there's this idea of a seizure, a snatching away, maybe now in some kind of a spiritual uh, translation, a spiritual uh, departure. Uh, and that's where we get our word rapture. There are five aspects of the rapture that are going to come up throughout our time tonight. It is one of the ways in which Christ returns. One of the things that my task is tonight is to make sure that you don't automatically download Revelation 19, the return of the Lord, uh, faithful and true, the, the sword dipped in blood, faithful written on his thigh, that kind of powerful imagery that we see in movies, that I don't want you only to download that when you see the phrase, the coming of the Lord. Because many of the rapture passages will describe the coming of the Lord in the form of the rapture, which I'm going to argue will be seven years prior to that, okay? So make, don't make the mistake of saying, well, every time I see the word coming of the Lord, I've got to think of Revelation 19. We'll show that not to be true, uh, but it is an aspect of the, of the return of the Lord. Uh, it is uh, in the air, however, as we saw in First Thess 4, and we'll see that in more detail here in a moment, that is also accompanied with a resurrection. We're going to see that the dead in Christ, all the saints from Pentecost until the moment of the rapture, all those that have died will be resurrected. They will be granted their immortal bodies at that time, okay? There's also the idea of the, well, he will say, and those of us who are alive and remain, well, what happens to us? The living believers, those that are not the dead in Christ, will be uh, caught up into the Lord's presence without experiencing physical death. And of course, that's what gets most people excited. You know, rapture fever is all about not dying, but that's only an aspect of, of what the rapture is about. The rapture is much larger than that, although it's a wonderful benefit. I'll, I'll certainly uh, agree with that. And we'll go to meet the Lord in the air. So we'll be with those that have departed, and now just moments before, if you will, may probably nanoseconds before, Paul will say in Corinthians, in the twinkling of an eye, you know, that's pretty fast. In, the, in, in that amount of time, they would first have been outfitted with their eternal bodies, and then we would go immediately into the state of our eternal bodies without experiencing physical death, those, that is, those who are uh, alive and remain. But both are in the presence of the Lord, and therefore comfort one another with these words. 
You know, it, it's cool to kind of look at the components of it. it. That's a neat little Greek word there. Okay, I get the rapture hall thing from Latin. But Paul wrote it ultimately to give comfort to those that had a question. And we're going to deal with what that question was in First Thess, Thess 4 here in a moment. But notice again, you'll see in prophetic literature that it often will link whatever God is, says will happen in the future to a get readiness It's called the imminency of the Lord, that he could be coming back at any moment, therefore I need to be ready, and and or a comfort. And that comfort comes from the fact that God is in control, that he is in charge, and that I can be comforted in knowing that he has uh, the future well in hand. And so those aspects of the the rapture, I hope, help you and, and, and put a little meat on these bones. Sometimes people will make the mistake of saying the rapture is a relatively new doctrine, um, that's simply not true. The, the history of doctrine is, it's like a bullseye. I want you to think of an archer's target, okay? So the bullseye, what is that, red or yellow? And then the series of concentric circles going out from that bullseye. Early in church history, they had to deal with the bullseye stuff. Deity of Christ, inerrancy of Scripture. Is God the same as the Father? And what's the deal with the Holy Spirit? And as you moved out... You moved out to things like ecclesiology and pneumatology. And really, on the out of the out is this thing called eschatology. It was not the first thing that they thought of as they left the upper room in Pentecost. You know, they weren't walking down the street arguing, is the rapture before the tribulation in the middle of it or the end of it? All the time in the the Gospels and even the book of Acts, the disciples are going, who is this? This is too much. What what is happening here? They're focusing on the person of Christ. How could he be doing this and still be God? The same questions that we have. So uh, the the apostolic fathers actually taught a mixed bag. Uh, Some did believe in the imminent return of Christ, that he could come at any moment, but others also held uh, that he would not return and could not return until the end of the tribulation. So he couldn't return at any moment if he was going to return at the end of the tribulation. And that's not unusual to find uh, kind of opposite positions in a, in, a, um, in a period of time. In the medieval church, um, Origen and Augustine sort of ruled the day, and amillennialism, meaning uh, Christ is just going to come back and we're going to go to heaven, and the details aren't that important. It's all allegory, it's all symbols, it's all a vision, it's all talking about the same thing. There's no distinction between the rapture and the second coming and the millennium. It's just the way the Bible teaches about that your future is safe. And that was sort of uh, the main teaching, although there were certainly pre-trib and pre-mill positions held by various groups during that time. And then the Reformation Church, really since 1500 and following, uh, is where you have um, the most powerful presence of uh, both premillennialism and pre-rap, pre-trib rapture things. Uh, and, and many over a 150-year period uh, held those positions. So just to, to think that through, again, sometimes you'll hear people saying, oh, this is all new stuff or not that old. Uh, it's been focused on more recently, but it's been around since uh, the uh, apostolic fathers. Um, now you got some handouts we're going to look at here. What, what people began to do when they wanted to figure out, when they got to that outer circle and wanted to talk about, okay, what's going to happen in the future? They noted this thing called the millennium, okay? Um, meaning a thousand, obviously. And, and, they, and they began to think, okay, how does Jesus fit in with that millennium? And pre-millennialists believe that Christ 
will come uh, before uh, that millennial period, that there will be a rapture of the church and that Christ will come before that golden age, in fact, will be the physical ruler within that golden age, okay? Now, there are other groups that were known as post-millennials. They're not as popular anymore uh, in our century, but World War I and World War II sort of took care of them because they had this view that everything was going to get better and get so much better that Christ would feel welcome in coming back. And so social gospel and a high, a high, a lot of change within government and bringing biblical things into how people live their lives daily in the sense of, of rules and regulations, we need to make the path straight for the Lord to come back. They didn't focus on the rapture. The second coming, they believe, was at the end of the millennial kingdom, uh, which was brought on by the church. Um, Abelonius, which is still very prominent today, really some hold to a rapture, none hold to a millennial kingdom per se, thus the phrase ah or no millennium. Uh, and they, they through allegory and, and focused uh, interpretation just sort of see all these things as a single event. That the rapture, the second coming are the same thing, the resurrections of the dead, uh, judgment and eternity all sort of happen simultaneously. It's not as detailed, it's not as drawn out. Okay, got to have a chart. So that's what a chart looks like of those three things. Christ coming back before the millennium, premillennialism. Christ coming back at the end of the millennium, because it's so great that, that the Lord feels welcome, is called postmillennialism. And, and no millennium or amillennialism is that you just have Christ's death and resurrection and his return. And, and it's quite frankly very popular because it's simple. And that's not a knock. It's People just kind of go, okay, I get it. Christ came once, he left, and he's coming back. And I'm good with that. Um, the problem, of course, is there seems to be a lot of biblical data on that, which sort of, I think, forces us to, to wrestle with it. But many will hold that. Looking at it from another perspective, uh, you can see here that pre believe that the tribulation will precede the second coming of Christ, and you've got a handout for this. And then the establishment of the millennial kingdom, a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ in which Satan is bound, Christ rules with a rod of iron, but also with kindness and grace from Jerusalem, all sorts of geographical changes described in Zechariah and Zephaniah, and certainly uh, portions of the book of Revelation talk about this period of time. At the end of that millennial kingdom, great white throne judgment, last judgment, and then we move into eternity uh, seen in in Revelation 21 uh, and 22. Uh, in in postmillennialism, you see that society gradually improves. Even what they would call now that we're in the tribulation, we're overcoming the tribulation, the tribulations of the world, things of that nature. And w- as we overcome that with the spreading of the gospel, they believed that eventually everyone would be converted, included the Jew- including the Jews, and it would be so perfect that Christ would then feel welcome to be the king of that. And that's their belief, and then that simply goes into the eternal state. And although amillennialists don't actually believe in a millennium, they believe in the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God is present on earth now fully. There's not some future aspect of it. It is fully here now, and that is what we can use to overcome uh, the tribulation that we focus upon. Some will hold a literal tribulation, some will not, but they're more focused on the end of it all. That, that it all comes together in the return of Christ, the most 
important moment in human history. And you can see why folks do that. We kind of go the return of Christ and Revelation, that's a big deal. Everything must be talking about that. And so it takes a little bit of work to separate and ask the question, well, could there be different aspects of of the return of the Lord? Could this thing called the rapture be before the the return of the Lord as we see in Revelation 19? And I think we'll see that. Uh, It certainly has something for our consideration and something for us to, uh, to think about. Now, they, they were out there on the ends of the, of the scale, and they were looking at the millennial kingdom. They say, okay, we got three groups, okay? You got the, those that think Christ is coming before the millennium. You got this group that thinks he's coming after the millennium. This group doesn't know, so they just say, no millennium. We're not certain. We're not ready to vote yet. And then they did the same thing on the rapture. If the rapture is before the millennium, uh, if the rapture occurs, what is the relationship of the rapture to the tribulation? Does it occur before the tribulation, called the pre-tribulation rapture? Not easy to say. I'm just going to say pre-trib. Then we're going to see uh, a a mid-trib rapture, which has some credence, and I see where they get their point. And frankly, a very commonly held view uh, is the post-tribulation rapture view, uh, and and we'll talk about those. So the pre-trib rapture view says that the focus is on the church, the church is removed, then God removes his camera toward the Jews to finish up their final seven years with him known in the tribulation period. Thus, the church cannot be a part of it because it is primarily focused upon Israel. The mid-tribulation view uh, comes to bear because there are components of the tribulation. There's clearly two distinct halves. And we, in Matthew especially, we'll talk about you're being delivered up to great tribulation at the midpoint of the tribulation period, which would be Revelation 11. And a lot of people think, well, the church is a part of the first three and a half years, but not the rougher portion of the tribulation, if you will. And so the mid-trib view came by those individuals. And then many will hold that because the rapture and the second coming are the same thing, the rapture, the church is raptured, but they immediately come back with the Lord on his return. Uh, And that's what's called a post-trib view, in which the church is present throughout the tribulation, uh, and the rapture of the second coming are just facets of one event, the the great return of the Lord at the conclusion of the tribulation. So, got a chart on that too, if you want to look. Again, pre-trib view, church age going on, church age ends with the rapture of the church, the catching away, the harpazo of the church, and then the seven-year tribulation, then the thousand-year millennial reign. A mid-trib view says Christ's death and resurrection, but the tribulation starts with the church still present. They go through halfway where the Antichrist is fully revealed, as you'll see in Revelation 11, Daniel 9 as well, 2 Thessalonians 2, and then uh, they are removed from the last more horrific portion of the tribulation. And others, post-tribbers, will hold Take a couple of verses that say that, the, that we, will, we need to undergo tribulation, meaning, I think, trials and, and, and things of daily living, and we'll load that into going through the tribulation. So the church exists through, all throughout the tribulation is that, that position. And, and you've got a chart, and I'll let you kind of look at that on your own, but it basically says the same thing. But only one of them says what I just said, but only one of them holds this thing called imminency that it could happen at any moment. Because the language is very clear in Daniel, in Revelation, in Luke, in Matthew, in Mark 13, that the, the tribulation will end seven years 
after it begins, after a peace treaty is signed by Antichrist and Israel. And Jason will get into that in more detail. But you know when the second coming of the Lord is in any scheme other than a pre-trib scheme. In a pre-tribulation scheme, you don't know when the rapture will occur, for it is prior to the tribulation period. Both in the mid-trib scheme and the post-trib scheme, you can date, you can know when the Lord is going to return because he tells you in great detail. And for those that are alive and at that time, he gives those dates so that they can endure and be encouraged to that end. I take it that we're not going to be a part of that and try to make that position for you. I got a little study for you. You've got a handout here. All that it is is Daniel 9, the same thing you see up here. Get a pen out. We're just going to do a little Bible study methods on your own. If you want to turn around and get with some groups, that's fine. Or if you want to do it on your own, I'm going to give you a few moments. But I want you to identify terms within these verses that deal with time, that deal with characters that are introduced, that deal with groups that are referred to, and the actions of those characters or groups or any kind of action words, okay? There's also a city in here. Uh, that needs to be identified. So I lump that under groups. That kind of makes some sense. We're just kind of doing some basic categorization through observational skills. Look for time references, character references, in the sense of people, groups of people or, and or cities, and what they do. And just circle it, and then I'm going to come in and help you in here in a moment, okay? Okay, we're off to an okay start. We could be here all night. I want to make sure that we are good observers, but also want to show you some patterns because for me in my house, this is the most amazing prophecy in the whole Word of God. This sets forth not only the certainty of a seven-year time focused in the future still on Israel, and that's the main contribution, frankly, and too often people will use it for its second contribution, which is a date scenario in which it will predict Palm Sunday. Uh, and then the subsequent Friday crucifixion. Um, but for our purposes, we're mainly going to see that this section, written by Daniel while he's in Babylonian captivity uh, about Israel's future, that he's going to basically say there's going to be a time where you're, you'll be taken out of the scene, but you'll have seven more years to do business with God. So I, I just did a little color code this way uh, just to let us see some of these different components. For example, time references, 70 weeks. Now, in Hebrew thought, a week is a period of 70, and we're going, it's not a period of seven years, by the way, it's just a period of seven, and so 77s, and the context will help us see that most likely he's talking about years. So 77s, or 490 years, uh, have been decreed for, now here's another group, your people and your holy city. Daniel's people, Jews, and Jerusalem, okay? Five things that Israel will have the opportunity to do in the future during that seven-year, or to what will end up being the seven-year period, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to build an everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint uh, the most holy place. For you are to know and discern that, notice, from the issuing, there's another time lingo, from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah comes on the scene will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, a total of 69 weeks. 
take it seven weeks it will take to restore the wall and the temple. Nehemiah's efforts was a part of that. And then the remaining 62 periods will take you up through that whole 69-year span. And I've got a chart that will help you see that. You've got from that issuing of that decree, which most likely will come in Nehemiah chapter 2, until Messiah will be 483 years. Okay? You've got to do some conversion for lunar and solar years, um, but the chart will help you see that. That's until Messiah. So notice Messiah the Prince shows up there in blue. He'll be cut off uh, after that 69-week period of time and have nothing. Then the Prince who is to come, another character, now shows up on the scene. Uh, he will come and destroy the city and the sanctuary. So we've seen your people, Jerusalem, We've seen Jerusalem by name, and now your people and the sanctuary will be the focal point of his efforts. And all of this will tie beautifully to what unfolds in the book of Revelation, which is centered in and around Jerusalem and all throughout Israel, with this person known as the Antichrist first really being introduced here in in, in Daniel 9. Matt will go into that in more detail, but this is the background of so much of what we study. Uh, He will make a firm covenant. That will be the beginning of of that seven-year period for the many for one week, one seven-year period, but in the middle of the week, and that's why you have the tribulation divided up into two three-and-a-half-year periods, because in the middle of it, he breaks that covenant, and he puts a stop to sacrifice, and he brings about abominable things upon the people of Jerusalem and Israel. And that's what Revelation will show you in great detail. This is where it begins. This is sort of the seminal prophecy of what ends up later being the book of Revelation. Very common in Bible college or seminary, you take Daniel and Revelation together because you see the background here and the future there. And so 490 years, part of that 483 is going to be used up, one seven-year period left, divided in two. You got, in, you got a chart that looks like this that may help you see this in another way, okay? Again, in your chart or your handout section, uh, you've got this in, in eight and a half by 11, just to let you see what he just got through saying. Jerusalem's going to rebuild, be rebuilt, and until that time, until Messiah is cut off, will be 483 years. The whole point of Daniel 9 is that there's one seven-year period left, okay? And that's the need for the tribulation conversation we'll have next week, but also as we look at it tonight, well, how does the rapture fit into this? Because Daniel didn't prophesy the rapture. How does the rapture fit into uh, the, the tribulation period? As, and you see those same characters on the, as we saw in that first timeline showing up. Jerusalem, Messiah, church, church is raptured, tribulation begins and goes through its whole seven years, Christ returns, kingdom established, new heavens, new earth, eternity. And so the the characters are lining up um, all throughout. A a, a little bit more precise way uh, that some enjoy would would be this. The math can be difficult, and it's not the the focus of this evening, but several have worked on it. Harold Honer, uh, his book, Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ, is one of the the best presentations. There are some critiques of it, but it's certainly where one should begin focuses on the fact that from the issuing of that decree to go and rebuild Jerusalem when Nehemiah went before the king and said, can I go back from that period of time, which is 
pretty well said at either 444 or 445 B.C. until, uh, if you go there, 69 more weeks, which is the same as 483 years, that puts you at the end of March in 33 A.D., and it gives you an April 6th crucifixion. Uh, An amazing prophecy, um, spoken well in advance. That's kind of the cool side of Daniel 9, 24 through 27. The macro side of it is no one argues that it's not saying there's seven years left in Israel's chronology with God. Um, We're going to now look at some passages. We're going to do another exercise here. But uh, of all the correspondence that you'll see in the New Testament focuses only on the rapture, and we're, we're kind of rapture only right now, the Thessalonian correspondence, interestingly, is probably the most replete. There's probably more stuff in First and First and Second Thessalonians about the rapture than any of the other New Testament books. Okay, and in particular, we're going to see in each of the five chapters of First Thess, Paul unfold his instruction about what he will call the coming of the Lord. But then you'll begin to see he's calling the coming of the Lord harpazo, that rapture word that we studied when we first started. So we're going to begin to see that distinction between that mighty, powerful coming of the Lord onto earth, full of war, full of blood at the end of Revelation 19, to a meeting him in the air and going away to be with him. A a, a clear distinction will be made. And it's most clear when we get to chapter 4, but I think once we get to chapter 4, we go kind of go back and say, oh, okay. It's sort of like in The Princess Bride. I don't think you know how you use that word. Now I see how you use that word, okay? And you'll start to see when it's clear in 1 Thessalonians 4 what he's been talking about in each of the chapters. In 1 Thessalonians 1.9, for they themselves uh, report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living God, the, the living and true God, and to wait, and you'll see that verb waiting often anxiously or or hopefully uh, for the return of the Lord. You'll see that word uh, wait a lot. And to wait for his son from from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. It's a the. The the word wrath there, orge, is the word for tribulation. And in fairness, sometimes it just talks about the tribulations of life. Death, illness, flu, getting fired, whatever it is, all the way to the tribulation. But here he uses the article in front of it. And he says, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. It'd be an unusual thing to say that he's going to rescue us from hell because that's part of the gospel transaction. To believe in Christ and that he died for our sins and rose from the dead, he pays for our penalty and we are secure in him. Paul goes to great lengths throughout his correspondence to make sure we understand that security and that we are completely removed from that condemnation. Romans 8, right? There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. He he lets us know through Jesus in John, uh, as he writes in John 3, that the wrath of God abides upon unbelievers. So it's it's an unusual thing to say that he writes to the Thessalonian believers and reminds them that your Lord rescues you from the wrath to come. You can't say, oh, I know exactly what he's talking about now, but it's interesting that he phrases it that way. Let's keep going. Next chapter, same book, okay? You'll see a theme. They share a common understanding 
of the rapture. But we, brethren, have been taken away from you for a short while, in person, not in spirit. We were all the more eager with great desire to see your face, for we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. For who is our hope, our joy, our crown of exultation? Is it not even you in the presence of the Lord Jesus at his coming? Same word used elsewhere to describe the coming of the Lord in Revelation is now being described here, what I think is going to become a rapture passage as we see the doctrine of the rapture unfold. At the coming of the Lord, he will be joyful of, of our presence uh, with the Lord at his coming. Notice in chapter 3, he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints. Could that be referring to the return of the Lord at the end of Revelation? It could, but in light of what we've seen that we're not going to be a part of that tribulation period, in light of the fact that he's joyful to that we will be gathered with him and will be with him at his coming, maybe this exercise might help us. Because I think chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, of which we looked at just a portion of to start our time, will help us really see the purpose of the correspondence. So you've got a passage that looks like that in your handouts if you want to do the same thing we did with Daniel 9. This one will go a little quicker. Um, But these are the questions that I want you to think about and try to answer from verses 13 through 18 in your passage. In particular, why is he writing the Thessalonians? Why has he been talking about the coming of the Lord and now really clarifies it, I think, in chapter 4. What two events does this passage describe? What is the order of the two events he describes? What two groups are present or presented in this passage? And where do the two groups meet the Lord? Let's answer the first question first, and then we'll come back and spend a little more time. Why is he writing this? Okay. What word does he use in particular? I don't want you to be uninformed, okay? There's, there's some, something, he, he spent time with them. Something has arisen, often a false teacher has come in. And now he, in his way of saying, he's actually going to remind them what he's already taught them, as we're going to see in chapter 5. But what is it that he doesn't want them to be uninformed about? What's the problem that's probably racking the church here? Yeah. My wife died. She's a Christian. Where is she? What's going to happen with her? Notice how he does it. I don't want you to be uninformed. Notice in green, about those who are asleep, just a euphemism for death. About those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, those who have fallen asleep, the dead in Christ, with them. It's woven throughout the passage. Is That's the problem that has arisen. And he's saying, I, I want you to understand what the deal is as to particular the future of the dead in Christ. Departed Christians. I want to give you some information about them. Okay? So let's go back. That's why he's writing. You with me on that? Can I get an amen on that's why he wrote that? Okay. What two events did the passage describe? Okay. So we saw that kind of in our components of the rapture. There's a resurrection. Then there's this catching up, this harpazo. So let's see if we can pick that up. That's what he's writing about. And now he's going to show us first there's a, there's a rising up and a catching up. So those are the two components, and they're separate things because they happen to separate groups of people, okay? And they're connected with that then. Resurrection of dead believers first, 
then harpazoing, catching up, rapturing of those of us who are alive. See the two components? See the two stages? See the two groups? Because the next question, that's the order of the events, the the two groups that are presented in the passage, of course, the green, those that have deceased, deceased believers, and in yellow, sort of, the brethren, the we, the you, we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. We who are alive and remain, we shall always be with the Lord. The dead in Christ the alive in Christ. And I mean dead in the sense of deceased, not unbeliever. And he's sort of showing you the different destinies, if you will, of each group. This group first will be resurrected, getting their bodies. And then we, after them, quickly after them, will also be united or be outfitted with an immortal body. And we will go with them in the clouds. And that's the key to the rapture. The rapture does not happen on earth. It is not the second coming of Christ on earth. It is the coming of Christ to meet his church in the air. And that church is comprised of dead Christians and alive Christians. I can't phrase it any more plainly, okay? In the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. He gives us two atmospheric terms. In the clouds, in the air is where the meeting happens, okay? And that's the beauty of the rapture. And we'll talk about why I think it should be before the tribulation. But we're seeing here in the Thessalonian correspondence, chapter, chapter 1, don't worry, that future wrath is not for you. You will be exalted at the presence of the Lord when he comes for you. When's he coming for me? At the end of the tribulation? I don't think so. I think he's coming for them here to take them and meet them in the air and take them uh, to go and be with him. And notice... In the next chapter, he does the same thing. You don't, have anyone to, you don't have any need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And you're right here. I think in chapter 5, he's dealing with those that were wondering, are we in the tribulation? Have we missed the rapture? And he says, why are you asking that question? You don't need to ask that question. You do not need anything to be written to you, for you yourself, you know fully that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. To those that will be caught in the tribulation, it will be like those of us that are here and someone's robbing our house. It's sudden. It's not to be expected. It's, it, 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 it's, not, it's a bad thing. The rapture is a great thing. So you don't need to know this, he writes them. I've already told you these things of what is going to happen, and you will not be a part of that. The day will will come just like a thief in the night. The day will not overtake you like a thief, believers, for you will not be here, I think is what he's saying. Uh, Because why? He has not destined us for the wrath, but for obtaining salvation or deliverance. We will be, I think it's his way of saying, we will be delivered from that future. Why? Because that future, Daniel tells us, is reserved for Israel and their final aspects of business with God. The church, by definition, will not be a part of that. And also, he lets us know it is a time in which you have not been destined for. And you don't need to know that. I've already told you that. You don't need any more instruction on that. You see, he says the same thing later, or or now, describes more fully the coming of the Lord in 1 Thess 5. Now may the God 
of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of the Lord Jesus. He's already let us see that at the coming of the Lord Jesus, the dead in Christ rise immediately, resurrected new bodies, those of us who are alive and remain, exalted, glorified new bodies, preserved complete and without blame. So as we see each of the passages come together, we can sort of step back and say, I think he's talking about the rapture, it's what I hold, in each of those five, now six references, chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four, and now twice in chapter five. The idea of the rapture being a major doctrinal position within the first correspondence to the Thessalonians, and then he writes them in the next letter and says, now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. Notice how he links the two. There is an aspect of the coming of the Lord in which he comes onto earth to end the tribulation period. That's the one people talk about the most. That's the one you see in Revelation 19. This one, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering to him. Where? In the clouds, in the air, as we just got through seeing in the first letter to the Thessalonians. He's distinguishing these two events, and I think it's important. Paul will make a similar statement, another, probably the, the next most famous rapture passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I say, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery, something previously not known. Daniel did not predict the rapture. It's now being revealed as what mysterion or mystery means here. I tell you a mystery, we will not all sleep, euphemism for death, uh, we will, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. That's that resurrection component and that rapture component of the harpazo, the being caught up to him with believers who have gone before us, we will join them in immortal bodies, in the air, to meet the Lord in the clouds and be with him, I think, in heaven during a seven-year period on earth in which tribulation is unfolding. We'll see kind of how that unfolds, okay? Again, think about these things. See Thessalonians as a major contribution to the rapture doctrine. There's many more places in which it's spoken. Jesus is going to speak of it, I believe, in John 14 as well. But um, it's interesting the phraseology that Paul uses about, you don't need to know this, I've already told you. You do need to know this, so listen up about future events. Uh, sometimes, by the way, uh, people see this passage in, uh, in 1 Corinthians, and they, uh, they, they see the word trumpet here, and they link that to uh, trumpets in Revelation, which is toward the end of the tribulation, and, and a lot of post-trib rapture people will make their position there. Uh, there are trumpets throughout the Bible. Uh, They're going on all over the place. Uh, I think it's the last trumpet as is the final command that that Christ will provide his church. Within Revelation, there's a series of trumpets. There are no other trumpets for the church. This is uh, the last trumpet in the sense of this will end this age. Uh, And and you can, through some kind of precise study, and I don't want to take you through this in, in much detail, but you can see, and in your notes you'll have this, a distinction between the trumpet in Revelation 11, 
where, where a lot of people will say that's the trumpet being talked about in 1 Corinthians 15 or, or 1 Thessalonians 4 also has a trumpet. Uh, and you see, uh, if you look closely, it's, it's a totally different deal. God is not reserved to using trumpet once. He's blowing trumpets all the way from um, Exodus through Revelation, and this just happens to be a way to herald the end of a particular age or a particular time, okay? Now, John 14, beautiful imagery. Uh, we're going to do a little exercise here as well, okay? This is Jesus, um, I think, talking about the rapture. And what we're going to see in our exercise is going to be an amazing parallel between not only the themes of, first, of, of John 14, 1 through 3, but also the actual words that you'll see in John 14 and the themes in John 14 to the same words and themes that you'll see in 1 Thessalonians 4. That's why we spent a lot of time in 1 Thess 4. I wanted you to become familiar with it. This is a passage that we're kind of familiar with. It's, it's a sort of an encouraging passage. It talks about my mansion in heaven. We get that imagery from this deal here. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. You don't see the receive you to myself imagery and verbiage in the second coming of the Lord to earth. This is a reference, I believe, to the return of Christ in which he receives his church in the clouds, in the air, that we call the harpazo, the rapture. In the air, in the air, not on earth, the, true, the two distinctions, okay? Now, what I want you to do is just think through, and you, you've got this here, I'm going to just give you, you've got a chart that looks like this in your notes in the larger section, and just take a look at those two passages. You've got the first S passage in your notes, or you can get your Bibles out, and just note three or four similarities. Now, there are many more, but I want to just kind of wet your whistle a bit to what I think Paul is doing in 1 Thessalonians 4 is writing an exposed commentary on Jesus' words in John 14, both talking about the rapture, okay? See if you can see what I see also, and then we'll, we'll see uh, if there are some similarities. Comparing John 14, 1 through 3 with 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Major themes, actually a ton of words are the same also, if you, a little hint. Let's look at some parallels thematically, okay? John 14, we'll talk about the Lord's return, a descent from heaven. First says 4, we'll talk about he will descend from heaven. John 14, the Lord will receive believers unto himself. I think that thought is rephrased in First Thess 4 as to meet the Lord in the air, even the clouds, right? Believers can be with him where he is, First Thess 4, and so shall we ever be with the Lord, that kind of uh, intimacy. And it's presented to calm, troubled hearts at the beginning of John 14, and at the end of First Thess 4, the words of comfort, okay? And there are more themes, but that's a, a good start as far as a Bible study on your own to go next. But th- this one kind of really just blew me away as I really got into it. Uh, even some of the terms, even the precision of the same Greek words and all that sort of stuff, but certainly the same concepts in terms, where trouble and sorrow 
or paralleled, or belief if it's uh, believe and believe or exact. Uh, God in me in First John or in First uh, in John fourteen and uh, Jesus and God in First Thess four. Uh, told you, say to you in parallel, come again, coming of the Lord, same terms, receive you, caught up, just a different way of saying the same thing, uh, to myself, to meet the Lord, be where I am, ever be with the Lord. It's kind of a passage at first you go, what does this have to do with one another? Uh, and typically what people have done is backwards. They see First Thessalonians 4 and then kind of see the rapture a little bit more clearly there and they go, wait a minute. Why did Jesus say what he said here in John 14 this way? There's another aspect that I think is really cool also. One of the courses I enjoy teaching the most is the look at prophecy through the lens of the Jewish wedding festival. Okay, The Bible is replete. It is full of allusions to the Jewish wedding festivals. And the authors use it. And he's doing it here. Okay, So if we wanted to explain something something that we all held in common, like an American wedding, which most of us will be familiar with. We may, you know, if I was to say, who gives this woman, you'd kind of know what that, what that is all about. If I say, by the power vested in me, you say, okay, I, I got that, you know. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today in the sight of God in the face of this company, join this man and this woman holding matrimony. Just did a wedding last week, so I'm kind of memorizing all this stuff. <laughs> we kind of know that that's wedding lingo, you know, uh, reception, Back in the day, tin cans behind the car, you know, wedding pictures, wedding illusions. So if we wanted to explain something by using an analogy, a metaphor, we might use a wedding analogy to explain something else. The Bible does that all the time. And it uses prophecy, it describes prophecy through the lens of the wedding festival. And this is a good one. What happens is the guy gets permission from the dad to pursue the girl and arrange a proper price for her. He goes, sometimes together with the father, sometimes alone, pays the price for the bride from the bride's father, then then says, I'm going now back, check it, to build a place for us in my father's house, okay? When my father says, you're good to go, son, because, you know, guys might just throw up a lean-to or something and say, "We're, we're heading back. I'm coming back for you. Watch it. I'm coming back for you. I don't know when, but I am coming back. Okay? You can count on it. So think about all the parables in which the bride and and her attendants are, are need to be ready. Keep your lamps trimmed. Have oil in your lamps. Because I know the bride's coming and he's going to come with a shout, right? And it says time for the festivities to begin. And so the the son pays the price, goes back to the father's house, builds a place for his bride with him is released then by the father when it's a proper, meets proper building code, then comes and gets his bride unexpectedly, but expectedly. You with me? It's a beautiful picture of what I think is unfolding biblically in the, through the lens of the rapture, through the lens of what really what is going on in what I think now is the building of the new Jerusalem in heaven. That's the mansion that, in which uh, we have many dwelling places. You'll see that show up in Revelation 21 in a few weeks. The, the, the usual suspects sort of show up throughout the Bible if you've learned to identify them in different ways. And here's a, a beautiful exegetical parallel between what at first might be two disparate passages. What does John 14 have to do with the rapture? Until you say, man, he's using the same language. He's describing the same event, just a different way. 
Titus will say a similar thing. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Now, what else are we to be doing? Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing, there's that word again, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Converted with all the stuff that we've learned, we are to be looking for the rapture and to be ready for it and to live as if it can happen at any moment because I think it can. And without the doctrine of imminency, and we'll see that in a moment, the rapture sort of loses its power. That it can happen at any moment is really why we should be looking for the appearing of the glorious return of the Lord. John will say a similar thing. Remember, same author who wrote John 14, which we just studied, wrote 1 John. Now, little children, abide in him. Now, you believers, remain, hang tight in him, and stay true to the vine, as we see in John 15, so that when he appears, there's that word appearing again, I think we've seen before that that's connected to the rapture. Gathering together, appearing, seems to be kind of synonyms for the rapture. When he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. So again, an aspect of the coming of the Lord is the rapture. It is not just the Revelation 19 second coming. It is also the appearing of the Lord. And we want to be ready for that. For if we are not, if we're caught unawares, we'll be ashamed. Not a heaven hell kind of a thing, but you caught me when I wasn't dressed up very nicely, Lord. I will, be, I will shrink away from you at that time. It's just a, it's a way to motivate, okay? We do it with kids all the time. When, you're, when they're younger, mom and dad are going out. Abby, you're in charge. We'll be home at 10 or earlier. No keggers or whatever, you know? We're coming home, and we may come home earlier than you expect. It's a way to motivate. Same author, next chapter. Beloved, now we are children of God. It has not appeared as yet what we will be, that idea of transformation. We know that when he appears, there it is again, we will be like him. A transformation will occur because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has his hope fixed upon him purifies himself now for that appearing. Negatively, we don't want to shrink away. Positively, we want to welcome his appearing. And thus, that's the reason for purification now, because he is pure. Just as Timothy will say, uh, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. See how ethics now are involved, how we live. Christian living is now connected to the rapture. Now, a lot of people sort of foo-fooed this at first, but Revelation 3 and Revelation 4 becoming, I think, crucial to understanding the unfolding doctrine of the rapture. Everyone agrees that the tribulation is, uh, the uh, judgments of the tribulation are described in a book in chapter 5 of Revelation, and then the tribulation begins in chapter 6. And it generally follows a chronology, where then the 11th chapter is after the 10th, and the 10th is after the 9th in the sense of chronology. There are some scene changes. You could have a, a terrible onslaught upon uh, the Jews that are now going about the world from chapter 7, evangelizing of the world because now we're back in that period of time reserved for the Jews. And then the next chapter might be a scene in heaven in which a lot of people who'd been killed for their faith are now in heaven, okay? 
but it generally follows a progression from chapter um, 6 all the way to 19, the return of the Lord that captures. The midpoint of the tribulation is Revelation 11. You'll see this more next week, but that just gives you a little scheme uh, to go on. Um, In Revelation 3 and 4, if you noticed, is before the seals that have, or the, the book that has, the scroll that has all the, the judgments in it that's in chapter 5. In chapter 3, it's the second part of a two-chapter segment in which he's writing the seven letters to the seven letters of the book of Revelation. And in Revelation 3, he says this, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you, very similar to what we saw in 1 Thessalonians uh, 1, 9, and 10, as well as 1 Thessalonians 5, I will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell upon the earth. That little phrase often comes, uh, in Greek it's just earth dweller, but to test those who dwell upon the earth is found throughout the book of Revelation. In fact, 10 other times the phrase those that dwell upon the earth, exactly as we see in Revelation 3.10 appears, okay? No difference whatsoever. Every other time the phrase, those who dwell upon the earth, refers to objects of God's wrath in the tribulation. And he's saying, I'm going to keep you from that. That's a time in which my wrath is reserved for those that dwell upon the earth, that are the deserved recipients of my wrath I think John is saying through prophetic lens, same thing that Paul is saying, same thing that Jesus is saying, I'm going to keep you from that hour. I'm going to, you, for you are not destined for orge, for tribulation, the tribulation, the wrath, okay? Again, a very powerful statement. And then in chapter 4, it's sort of hidden, but it's interesting, okay? Chapter 4, he says, after these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open where? In heaven. And the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking, said to me, come up here. Come up here. And I will show you what must take place after these places. Revelation 4, we know the 24 elders represents the church, and they are in heaven. For they have been cummed up here. Bad English, but I hope it translates. Revelation 5, the overall plan is unfolded. Revelation 6, the tribulation begins. It wouldn't be my lead presentation if I was uh, presenting the, the doctrine of the rapture, which I am tonight, and I've kept it to the end. But it's noteworthy uh, that, that chapter 3 and 4 might be making a more powerful allusion to the rapture than we first thought. The idea of coming up here, the trumpet in heaven, the 24 elders almost everyone agrees is the church. And where are they? In heaven. Not on earth. Why? Because Daniel says that last seven years is not for you, it's for them, the earth dwellers, on, which, on whom I will pour my wrath. So we've talked a lot about the meeting in the air, meeting on the ground. This is a good, and this is in your, the chart section of your notes, uh, the, the rapture is sudden. It's in the twinkling of an eye. It's quick. Second advent of Christ, the one in Revelation, is scheduled. You know exactly when it's going to be. It's going to be at the end of a seven-year period of time. When does the seven-year period of time begin? Daniel 9 says, when the Antichrist makes a covenant with Israel. At the midpoint of the, of the tribulation period, he violates that covenant. 
And then the book of Revelation will use the term 42 months. It will use time, times, and half a time is the way they count one year, two more years, and then half a year. And it will use 1,260 days, I think, uh, all saying the same thing, three and a half years, that last portion of it. A mystery is the rapture of the church. The second advent is prophesied. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, I'm telling you something no one's ever told anybody before. This is new revelation. The second coming of Christ is found throughout the Old Testament. Believers meet the Lord in the air in the rapture. Christ returns on earth to judge where comfort is the overall mood of the rapture. The rewards, judgment seat of Christ, marriage supper of the Lamb. You've got to ask yourself the basic question, when do these things take place? Unless the church is in heaven during the seven-year period of tribulation on earth. No time in the book of Revelation is the judgment seat of Christ mentioned. No time, but at the end, the end of Revelation 19 is the marriage supper of the Lamb mentioned. And what it says is the marriage, the bride has made herself ready for her groom. And she comes back with him. We come back with him at the return of the Lord. Dressed in white linen, now married now enjoying a banquet feast on planet earth, heaven and earth meeting up again. The church lives at the end in the eternity in the new Jerusalem, but the millennial kingdom is established on earth. It's two different things. And don't make the mistake of just seeing coming of the Lord and sort of blending them together. That's where I think get in trouble. This one's just a larger explanation of what I just said for your own study. But I think to make this distinction and demarcation is absolutely crucial to really think through the doctrine of the rapture and see it as an an act distinct from the Revelation 19 return of the Lord, okay? Again, those five aspects, but resurrection was one of those aspects, and I threw in a chart there because conversations like tonight often sort of ask, well, what happened to the saints in the Old Testament, and what about unbelievers who lived then? Moses gave us a chart. He's handed it down to seminary students throughout the years, and now I'm giving it to you. And this is it by my good friend, Jim Klubnick, who is with the scribe on this one, okay? Kind of all the different resurrections described in the scriptures. Because remember, the rapture is a, re- is a resurrection. It's a resurrection of dead believers and then the outfitting of immortality with living believers, and that's the essence of we, we must take on immortality to be in God's presence. Um, and so we, we see those various components. I'm going to end with this one because we've seen it hinted, and I'll go quickly just to, uh, to make the point. But uh, the concept of, of imminency, okay? Not intimacy, Chip, but imminency is what we're going to talk about next, okay? It, it, the idea and how I'm going to use the word is that describe something that is ready to take place at any moment. However, it does not mean soon, and that's a mistake that is often made, okay? Soon to an English speaker, we have enough reference to know, okay, you're talking about something that's not a hundred years from now. I wouldn't say I'll be over your house soon and show up in 2019, okay? That's, it's somewhere within weeks, months, days, minutes, kind of depending on the context, but it's way not out in the future. So kind of dismiss that idea. So sometimes you'll see, hear people say, the Lord is coming soon to try to capture this passion of let's be ready for the rapture, okay? But when they say soon, and it doesn't happen soon, you go, dude, you said it was going to happen soon. 
you said that in 1952, and it's not happened yet, okay? Because it's not talking about soon. It's talking about that it could happen soon. It is ready to take place at any moment. Imminency means that the rapture could take place at any moment. While other events may take place before the rapture, no event must precede it, is what I'm going to argue. Prior events are required before the tribulation, then the rapture could not be described as imminent. If the rapture is at the midpoint of the tribulation, I can tell you exactly when it's going to be. If it's at the end of the tribulation, I can tell you exactly what it's going to be. And the doctrine of imminency goes away because I just get ready for that. I can peak for that day. If it could happen now, how about now? How about now? In the twinkling of an eye, that kind of speed, that seizure, that snatching could happen right now. Then, okay, I need to be ready. Since the rapture is imminent and could happen at any moment, then it follows that one must be prepared for it to occur at any time without sign or warning. And that is the major takeaway of the Christian life's application to the doctrine of the rapture. That because if a pre-trib rapture scheme is correct and it can happen at any moment, how then should we live in light of that reality? Okay? And that's the whole purpose of the doctrine of imminency. Third, imminency eliminates any attempt at date setting. I apologize for all those There was a guy when I was in seminary that actually had the audacity to write a pamphlet, 88 Reasons the Rapture Must Occur in 1988, okay? It didn't occur, in case you were around then, it didn't occur. He then wrote, yep, 89 Reasons the Rapture Must Occur in 1989, okay? How many of you bought that pamphlet? I bought them both just to, you know, check them out. Eminency eliminates any attempt at date setting. Why? Because we don't know when it's going to happen, Okay? Date setting is impossible since the rapture is signless. It provides no basis for date setting. And if imminency is really true, the date, a moment the date is fixed, then Christ could, come at any, could not come at any moment destroying imminency. If there's a date connected, it doesn't work. Fourth, a person cannot legitimately say that an imminent event will happen soon. That's what I was talking about earlier. The term soon implies that events must take place within a short time. By contrast, an imminent event must take place within a short time, or may take place within a short time, but it does not have to in order for it to be imminent. That it could happen at any moment is sort of the takeaway. Um, By an imminent event, we mean that one is certain to occur at some point, but uncertain as to what time. So I've given you some some verses that you could study that are are found throughout the scripture. These are just a few of, of and we've looked at most of these is why I'm going quickly, and and you've got the the handout in there. But throughout the scriptures, uh, Peter, you know, 4, 7, the, the end of all things is at hand. They, they were ready at any moment for the return of the Lord. They just didn't know when it was going to happen. They knew it could happen at any moment. He's near. I'm coming quickly. The spirit of the bride, the, the whole Bible ends with an anticipation of the return of the Lord and that it could happen uh, at any moment. Okay. I want to give you two or three ideas about why I think a pre-tribulation rapture scheme is what the Scripture is holding forth. There are other views. We see dimly in a mirror. Uh, Prophecy is tough to interpret. Um, I am 100% that the Bible presents Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah. I am not 100% that the rapture is before the tribulation. But I'm so convinced on a pre-mill situation, I don't even eat post-toasties anymore, okay? (laughs) I'm, I'm pretty sure it's going to happen. 
the way we're talking about here, okay? The whole evening was the buildup for that little moment, okay? Thank you. We'll be in Vegas next week. Good to see you. Thanks for coming out. Why do I think the rapture is before the tribulation? God has sort of tipped his hand a bit. He has previously removed the righteous prior to dispensing wrath. It's not a new idea. Noah, he goes to great lengths to say that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his day, was removed before the wrath of God in the form of of water or flood. The wrath would be dispensed in in drowning. Enoch, raptured prior to the flood, if you um, follow his uh, time frame. Lot, although he behaves terribly, 2 Peter says that he's a righteous man. Says it six times, I think. That righteous man vexed in his soul. And that's what gave to his fourth his improper behavior. But Lot and his daughters were rescued prior to God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. God is in the business of removing the righteous before dispensing his wrath. Okay? Does it mean it has to happen every time? No. But we've got some precedent. It's happened before. It's going to happen in the future, too. In the future, God will resurrect and take the two witnesses unto himself in the future at Revelation chapter 11. So they don't go through the latter part of the tribulation. And a lot of people get the the mid-trib scheme from this, okay, in fairness, okay? But nonetheless, God is in the business of removing the righteous prior to the outpouring of his wrath. It's also in the nature of the tribulation, and all this will now be a, a, a review. The Bible teaches that the tribulation, that seven years, 70th week of Daniel, is a time of preparation for Israel's restoration and Israel's regeneration. Remember the camera image? Camera's on church now. Church is raptured. Camera moves back to Israel in its final seven years as the unfolding story of God found in the Scripture uh, is presented. Revelation 3.10 notes that it will not be for the church but for those that dwell upon the earth. It's a powerful exegetical phrase to see the same exact phrase occur 11 times in one book, same author, and the other 10, you're quite certain those are the objects of God's wrath. And he's saying, you're not destined for that. This, I'm going to keep you from that hour. That hour is for those that dwell upon the earth, okay? While the church will experience tribulation in general, trials, tribulation in that aspect, uh, she is never mentioned as participating in Israel's time of trouble, the great tribulation, the day of the Lord, the wrath of God. Not once is the church mentioned or even alluded to after Revelation 5. And then Revelation 6 is when the, uh, the tribulation unfolds. The next time you see the bride of Christ is in Revelation 19, returning with her Lord, her husband. Israel is, however, mentioned consistently throughout these passages. Geographical references, temporal references, uh, Jewish references. In fact, the church is seen in heaven in Revelation 4 and not again until the return of the Lord in 19. Also, the nature of the church argues for a pre-tribulation scheme. Only a pre-trib rapture position is able to give full biblical support of the New Testament teaching that the church is different from Israel. The church has, Israel has not replaced the church and the church has not replaced Israel. They're distinct beings or distinct groups through which God has chosen to reveal himself. For we know in Ephesians 3 that the church is seen to be a mystery. Wasn't known in the Old Testament like the rapture. This unusual combination of Jew and Gentile into one group, which is what he describes as the church, is a new thing. This explains why the church's translation to heaven is never mentioned in the Old Testament passages, because it's a mystery, not revealed until Paul writes 
Ephesians. And the church alone has the promise that all believers will be taken to the Father's house in heaven, John 14, not to the earth as other views would deem. The return of the Lord, and we end here in the rapture, has always been imminent, 1 Peter 4. Since it's impossible to know the exact date of the, it, since it is possible to know the, the, the exact date of the mid and end points of the tribulation, then the mid-trib and post-trib positions do not allow for an imminent return of the Lord. Only the pre-trib position remains that. The many contrasts between the rapture and the second coming, and we've looked at those in great detail, and you've got a chart, allows us to hold these two events as separate and distinct. And only, uh, and, and this just kind of makes some common sense to me. Only the pre-trib schema allows time for the judgment seat of Christ, which is the judgment of believers, not a heaven and hell judgment, but a reward like a, in the Olympics where medals are being given, that kind of evaluation. It's not, are you in heaven or not? You're in heaven, but what kind of reward will one receive? 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5, as well as the initial stages of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Guess how long a marriage, a marriage feast lasts in Israel? Seven days. Church in heaven, seven years. Church is dressed up as a bride, ready, presented with her husband. Like that moment, ladies and gentlemen, may I present to you Mr. and Mrs. Sam Jones. That's where we get that from, the presentation of the groom and his bride in Revelation 19, who comes back to set up the kingdom on earth. And it's a beautiful image that you'll see unfold here with the rapture and now Now that we've sort of knocked the first domino over and had time to explain a lot of these terms, I had to take a little extra time, I felt, to do that. I think you'll really begin to see the unfolding plan uh, quite more, very beautifully, actually, with with the idea of the tribulation and and then the millennial kingdom and new heavens and new earth. Let me me pray for us. I'm going to hang around here as, I don't know, what do you think, Sarah, one or two? Okay, one or two a.m., and uh, we can talk about it. I appreciate you hanging with me. It's a lot to cover in one evening, but uh, um, I'd rather give you more than less, you know? I mean, some of you paid $300 for the note, so I I thought that would be (laughs) the right thing to do. God, thanks so much for this time that we've had. I pray for each one here, Lord, including myself, that you might give us time alone with you to search the Scriptures to see if these things are so. Uh, We ask again that your Spirit might teach us, reveal to us, but also comfort us that our future is sure, it is guaranteed, it is protected, by the one strong enough to bring about creation and uphold it, and also to keep the saved saved and the righteous right. And we ask you, Lord, to uh, comfort us with those thoughts and remind us of the the beauty of the Word of God. It's all its facets, including the 27% that that is prophetic. I pray that you might revive us now and uh, rekindle us to be lovers of the entire Word of God. I pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. Same time, same place, I think, if we keep coming back. But thanks for hanging with me, guys. I appreciate it.